So we're up to the church in Philadelphia and uh, the name might sound familiar because uh, it's the name of a well-known city in the US. Uh, it was also quite a popular name for towns and cities in the ancient world so it wasn't the only Philadelphia but it was the, the big one um, in that part of, uh, of uh, Asia Minor. As we've been doing, we'll start with the portrait of Jesus at the beginning and the promises at the end and see what they mean for uh, the church at Philadelphia but also for us. So at the beginning we're told that uh, these are the words of the Holy One, the True One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, uh, these words draw on and elaborate a a number of things that were said in chapter 1, both in the vision of Jesus but also in the the introduction to the letter. We're told that he is the Holy One and the True One. Now both of these phrases speak of Jesus' identity as the Son of God in both senses that we saw a couple of weeks ago. They convey the idea of his divine nature as God the Son, but also his status as the Messianic King, the Son of God. Both of these characteristics, holiness and truth, are attributes of God himself. He is the ultimate true and holy one. So Jesus is these things not only because of his divine nature, but because these attributes, holiness and truth, are what we call communicable attributes. They are attributes of God that he also can give to his creatures. So a human being may also be holy and true. So Jesus is not only the revelation of the holy true God, he's also the perfect image of a holy and true human being. A verse that's uh, applied to Jesus a number of times uh, by the apostles in the book of Acts in reference to Jesus' resurrection, Psalm 16.10, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus being raised from the dead is the sign that he is the true and holy one who has been set apart by the Father, the only one qualified to accomplish our salvation and to be anointed as our sovereign king. And then in 1 John we see the connection in terms of truth. We know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. See how the first he who is true here is the Father uh, whom we know as the Son gives us understanding and then we see how it is we know the Father. It is because we are in him who is true. The second time it's his Son, Jesus Christ. The Son is the perfect image of the Father. By embracing us into himself, the Son has brought us to the Father. And to make sure we get it, he spells it out clearly. 
He, Jesus, he is the true God and eternal life. If someone ever tries to tell you that the idea of Jesus being God was invented by Christians a long time after Jesus, just show them this verse, written by a follower and an eyewitness of Jesus who was taught by Jesus himself. John here makes one of the clearest statements in the New Testament that Jesus is God. The third thing that Jesus says about himself in this portrait is that he has the key of David. He's picking up on in the introduction. Uh, He says, I do not fear, I have the key of death and Hades. Slightly different, we'll look at what that difference means in a moment. But here he's quoting directly from Isaiah, Isaiah 22. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward to Shebna, who was over the household, and say to him, what have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man, he will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and round and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And... oh. I've lost the last verse of that, which is the critical verse. He says, I will clothe him with your robe and I will bind your sash on him and I will commit your authority to his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. There's the verse that Jesus is quoting directly here. But maybe you're thinking that hasn't made things any clearer, especially because I left the critical verse off the screen. But here's the backstory to this passage. Shebna, there in verse 15, was the chief steward of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, who reigned from 725 to 697 BC. Shebna was essentially Hezekiah's prime minister, overseeing all of the administration of the kingdom. He would have had both figuratively and probably literally the keys to the official buildings of the kingdom, including the king's palace. Now, as the Assyrian Empire in the north grew in power and its threats to the Israelites, uh, demanding that Judah pay tribute to their king, Shebna, it seems, was probably key in brokering an alliance with Egypt in the southwest in the hope that Egypt would be their protection against Assyria because they were planning to refuse to pay the Assyrians tribute. 
The kingdom in the north, the Assyrians and Egypt in the south were in this constant tussle back and forth to try and control that strip of land along the eastern side of the Mediterranean where Israel was located. So Israel was always caught in between these two big superpowers fighting it out. Uh, Probably a bit what the Ukrainians feel like in a way today. The problem was Israel had been forbidden to ever return to Egypt by entering into an alliance with the very nation from which they had been rescued out of slavery. So Shebna may have said he was keeping the house of David safe, keeping the Assyrians out, but in fact he was compromising by letting the Egyptians in. He obviously saw this as a way to secure his own position. He was rewarded by the Egyptians by allowing them to get one step further into taking over this prized territory. So Isaiah, the Lord through Isaiah, tells him his days are numbered and he's going to be replaced by a new man, Eliakim. Shebna's plan backfired. In 729, the Assyrian king invaded, exiled the northern tribes of Israel and kept pressing southward into Judah. He sent an emissary to Hezekiah, threatening to destroy him because of this alliance he had with Egypt. Now, by by now, true to Isaiah's prophecy, Eliakim was now in charge of the household and it was through his negotiations and Hezekiah's prayers that the Assyrian king withdrew because other things started happening and allowed Judah to remain. So it was through the hand of Eliakim who held the key of David that this kingdom was secured, at least for a time. Eliakim... Oh, sorry, not Eliakim, um, yes, Eliakim, sorry, was a type of Jesus, which is what Jesus is claiming by quoting that verse from Isaiah 22. Jesus has secured the kingdom. He has repelled its enemies so that anyone who takes refuge in his house is safe and secure because he holds the keys of the kingdom. Now, as I said, back in chapter 1, Jesus speaks of having keys, but he describes them differently. He says, I have the keys of death and Hades. How are the key of David and the keys of death and Hades related? Well, they show us the two sides of salvation. We are saved both from something and to something. It's one thing to be told, come into my house, I have the keys, I can lock the door, I can keep you safe, but it's no good me hearing that if I'm being held a prisoner in someone else's house. I need my saviour first to take the keys to my neighbour's house, to open the door to set me free so that he can then bring me into his own house. And that's what Jesus has done. 
He's entered the house of death and Hades at the cross where we were held captive. He's defeated and bound them. He's plundered their treasures. He's bound the strong man. He's stolen their keys. He's unlocked our prison cell and he's set us free from their power over us and brought us out into freedom. And he's unlocked and opened wide the doors of his father's house, which doesn't contain prison cells. He contains many rooms set up for sons and daughters and he's welcomed us in. No one is qualified apart from him to open the door to his father's house. What he opens, no one will shut. And no one is powerful enough to close and lock the doors behind us to keep us safe from harm. What he shuts, no one will open. Now, not only are we brought into his house, but in his house we are given status. And that brings us to the promise at the end to the one who conquers in verse 12. We're told that I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Philadelphia uh, was also known as Little Athens because it was full of Greek temples like the city of Athens. And there's something interesting that you'll see when we compare the architecture, hopefully that picture will appear in a moment. There it is. Compare the Jerusalem temple there on the left and the Greek temple, uh, the style of temples on the right. See how in the Greek temple the pillars are around the outside. The actual temple itself is, is in the middle. Whereas in the Jerusalem temple, the pillars are on the inside, both inside the outer courtyard where the people could gather and inside the inner courtyard where the sacrifices were made. And then in the inner courtyard, reflecting the original design of Solomon's temple, there are the pillars, one on each side of the entrance to the holy place that are built into the very structure of the building. Here's what 2 Chronicles 3 says about these pillars. In front of the house he made two pillars, 35 cubits high with a capital of five cubits on the top of each. He made chains like a necklace and put them on the tops of the pillars and he made a hundred pomegranates and put them on the chains. He set up the pillars in front of the temple, one on the south, the other on the north. The one on the south he called Jachin and the one on the north, Boaz. Now we don't know the precise meaning of these names, Jachin and Boaz, but they're related to the words for established and strong. So what does it mean to be made a pillar in the temple of God. It means you're not just a visitor, you're not just an observer, 
You're part of the structure. You're an integral part of God's house. It's a temple which we're told by Peter is being made out of living stones. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're also told that there are three names written on us, each of which tells us something about the status that we have in God's house. Now here's another image for you to keep in the back of your mind as we go through Revelation, the image of people with names written on them. In the ancient world, uh, people might mark or tattoo their bodies with words or symbols that symbolise the gods to which they were devoted. By physically and permanently marking their bodies, they were demonstrating their piety as well as advertising to everyone else who it was that they worshipped. Tattoos were also used by people to mark their slaves so that if the slave escaped... They could always be identified as the slave who belonged to someone else and if they were caught, we'd know who to return the property to. And we'll see this idea later in this book when the beast forces people in the world to take a mark on their hands or on their head as they're forced into slavery of worship to the beast. Well, in stark contrast to to that, we see Jesus giving his people whom he's redeemed another mark that speaks of his ownership of them, but not to make them slaves. In this case, these names give us status. They bring us into a relationship. So, let's see what these three names are and what they communicate Firstly, the name of my God. Well, that's who is Jesus' God. It is the Father. Jesus calls him my God, not to downplay his own divinity, but because as a man he is related to the Father on our behalf as his God. So the name of God written on us, the name of the Father, speaks to us of our adoption as his sons and daughters. When a child is born, their parents not only give them their own name, but they also give them their name, the family name, as we all know. And so we know not only as an individual, but who we are as a member of a family, the son or daughter and heir of our parents. So when Jesus opens the doors with his key, we come in as family members, not slaves. We come in crying, Abba, Father. The second name is the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. We'll see more of that heavenly Jerusalem in 
November sometime. This name speaks of our citizenship. It's our passport which guarantees entry into the city and as a citizen it gives us rights and privileges and protection as well as a responsibility to live by the laws of the city. And as I said, this city we'll see right at the end of the book in November, the New Jerusalem is actually the church, the community of God's people that will continue into eternity in the new heavens and new earth. So being a citizen not only puts us in a right relationship with the king of the kingdom, but it puts us in relationship with one another as fellow citizens. It calls us to live in peace and love and unity with one another as we work together for the good of the kingdom. And thirdly, he says, and my own new name. That's another way of saying what we saw back in chapter 2 with the white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. This name is Jesus' personal private name which he only makes known to the person who holds the stone. He only makes known to his bride. So this name speaks of our membership in the bride of Christ through which all that he has, including his name and his very self, he gives to us in that marriage covenant. So Jesus takes his keys, he opens the door so that his bride might come into this new home that he has prepared for her. In our individualistic world, we're encouraged to be known purely for who we are in and of ourselves. We're told that we have to discover or choose our own identity that will set us apart from everyone else and show how unique, how special, how worthy of love and acceptance we are. But in the biblical world, people were known by their relationships and their significant relationships became part of their name. In that world, I would be known as James, son of Malcolm. Not Malcolm here, my dad's name is Malcolm. Or I would be known as James of Gawler, my hometown. I'm in a relationship with the people who live in that town. And my wife would be known as Michelle, wife of James her husband's name. My identity is not in or what I am myself. It is in the family and the community of which I am a member. These three names give us a beautiful and complete picture of what it means to be a Christian. We've been adopted. We've been brought into citizenship in the kingdom we've been brought into the bride of Christ. How do you talk to others who aren't believers about what it means to be a Christian? In the world today, uh, there are two main stereotypes of what a Christian is. 
The first is that Christians are people who hold to a certain set of ideas, a belief system or a philosophy. And so we'll be told, well that's fine for you if you want to believe in those old-fashioned silly ideas about people coming back from the dead, that's your truth and if it helps you then go for it. But only if you keep it private. Don't you dare tell me that I have to believe those silly things too. And most of all, don't let your beliefs, especially the offensive ones, shape the way that you live publicly. The second stereotype is that we're a people who follow a certain list of rules and regulations. Again, we'll be told, if you want to follow those outdated rules, then fine, but don't dare tell anyone that they should live by them too. And especially when your rules are considered offensive, such as, for example, what you believe and live out about marriage, you must never suggest that that's actually the best way to live. Those two stereotypes, and we can easily slip into the mode of talking about our faith according to those stereotypes as a set of beliefs or a set of rules. Now, believing the gospel and biblical doctrine is important, it's vital, as is walking in obedience to Christ and his commands, but neither of those are what constitutes our identity. They're the outflow of our identity. These three relationships, adoption, citizenship and marriage, are. So when we're talking to others about our faith, and especially if we're seeking an opportunity to share the gospel, let's speak in these relational terms first and foremost, because all three of them are a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. They're the fruit of they're the goal of his mission. In the, the new heavens and the new earth, we'll put aside our written doctrines and written commands that we have in the scriptures, which for now are crucial as we walk by faith and not by sight. But then we'll see face to face. We won't need our Bibles anymore in that time, in the new heaven and new earth, because we will see the one who is true. We will hear the commands from the one who is holy from his mouth and his law will be written on our hearts so that obedience will be the joyful expression of the relationship. So evangelism isn't about trying to convince someone to believe the same as us or to start living the same way as us. It's an invitation into a relationship. Through repentance and faith, the Spirit brings us into fellowship with the Father and the Son and their family, the church. What does this all mean then for the church in in, uh, Philadelphia? Well, like the church in Smyrna, Jesus only has a word of encouragement for Philadelphia one of the two churches where Jesus doesn't say, I have this against you. 
They've stood firm as a church in the face of persecution, not only from the Romans, but also from the Jews in their city. Remember that phrase we also saw at Smyrna, the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not. So these two churches that received only a positive letter are the two who have faced this double-headed persecution. They were excluded from the Gentile community because they refused to participate in the idolatry and they were excluded from the Jewish community because they were proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. They were, so to speak, on the outside in every way in their community. So, Jesus' word to them in light of what we've seen is, there's an open door for you into my house. You may feel you're on the outside as far as the world is concerned, but in fact, you are the real insiders. You're a family. Your name is on the invitation list. I've unlocked the door and no one is able to stop you from coming in to the banquet. He tells them that they have but little power. The word for little there is micros, from which we get the word microscopic. They're almost spent at the end of themselves, probably because of the trials that they've been facing. Yet, despite having little power in themselves, they were able to do these two things. Keep his word and not deny his name. These are two things that actually require little or no power in ourselves because they can only be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. In that sense, their powerlessness was to their advantage. They could not achieve anything that they could lay claim to or credit for. They could only hear the word of Christ and trust in his name. So you have but little power. It's not a criticism. It's a commendation. It's only when we are weak as persons and as a church that Christ's power is made perfect in us. Because in him we know the reality. We're not the outsiders. We are the pillars in the temple of God. We are called established and strong. So they're given two promises of what their future holds. Firstly, that the Jews of their town will bow down at their feet. That's a vindication of Christ's people, the church, before the Jews who had rejected them. But notice what the Jews will learn, that I have loved you. I think this is more than a vindication It's not just the Jews acknowledging that they are wrong and the Christians are right. They will see in the Christians the love of Christ. And maybe by seeing Christ's love for his church, they will then realise his love for them and they will come to repentance and faith in him. 
Secondly, they're told in the hour of trial that's coming, he will keep them from it. Now, we shouldn't mistake this as a promise to save them from any difficulty or suffering. It's not a reference to the idea of a rapture where they're taken out of the world before a tribulation. See what Jesus says as he prays for his disciples in John 17. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The exact same phrase, keep them from, is used here. Keeping us from trials in the world doesn't mean removing us from the world or making life easy for us while others around us are suffering. It means guarding us from the evil one so that whatever suffering we face, it will not destroy us. It will not cause us to let go of his word or to deny his name. As long as the church is in the world, this side of Jesus' return, we will always be caught up in the outworking of God's judgments in this world. We're not exempt from the suffering that comes from living in a creation that's under the curse of sin and under judgment. But in Christ, we are enabled to stand firm in the trial, counting it joy even, that he is working his purpose in us to make us more like Jesus by giving us the privilege of sharing in his sufferings. And then Jesus adds to this the words, I'm coming soon. It's not referring to his second coming at the end of the age. If it were, we'd have to adjust our understanding of the word soon as that promise was made nearly 2,000 years ago. But we shouldn't always automatically understand Jesus' coming when he uses that term to always refer to the final day of judgment. Until Jesus does come then, he still comes many times in the sense of making his reign as king of all known in a special way at particular times. It's a term that means he's acting in judgment and people are seeing something of his glory being made known in his judgments. That's how he's able to keep his people from the hour of trial because the hour of trial that was to come for them was his own doing. He brings his judgments on the earth and as we'll see in the coming chapters, he does it both to bring justice to the world and to deal with evil and to vindicate and to purify his people. So don't despair when you look around and you see wars and rumours of wars, earthquakes, pandemics, rising and falling kingdoms, they're just the outworking of his judgments and he promises that in the midst of these judgments he holds you safe. 
You're inside the walls of his house. You're in the temple courts. You're seated at his table. Do you need any other assurance that Jesus is able to save you? Stop your striving and rest on this assurance. And if you don't believe, then flee to Jesus, your only hope. Let's pray.